Welcome to the 90 or Nothing podcast with hosts Paxton Pulford and Kylie Barnett. Well, this week, guys, we have a big interview with none other than Hayden Upton. And joined with me, I had Rob Parrish, who's a great mate of mine and a great mate of Hayden's. Now, Hayden is a cutting horse trainer based in Texas. He was born in Australia and grew up in Maitland, New South Wales. Hayden certainly has lived an interesting life and has an awesome story. This interview has been proudly brought to you by Camp Draft Training Online. Make sure you duck over to their website www.teamcto.com.au and subscribe to get all the latest training videos from some of Australia's greatest Camp Draft trainers. These guys will seriously make a difference in your program. So remember guys, when spurring and jerking just ain't working, jump on www.teamcto.com.au. Well, g'day guys, it's great to have you here on the 90 and Nothing podcast show. I've got joined with me in the 90 and Nothing studio, we've got Rob Parrish, who's a great mate of mine, and we've got on the line, on our overseas call, Hayden Upton. Now, this is our first overseas call, so we're, we've been looking forward to doing this for quite a while, and um, the reason we've got these two together is, well, Rob and Hayden go back way back in time and grew up together and and a great mate, so we thought it'd be a bit of fun to get them both in here. And um, so, yeah, Rob, I'll hand over the reins to you. And yeah, guys, welcome to the Ninety or Nothing podcast show. Thanks, mate. Thanks for um, uh, trusting me with your um, your good podcast, mate, and the good work that you and Kylie been doing. Oh, so yeah, yeah. So how you going, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Real good. Just yeah. uh, just got back from a. Four day horse show, which is the first one we've had for several months, and so that feels good to uh, be out and about and getting somewhat back to normal. So it was good. Yeah, good, good. You, um, you. Before we get started, I um, just thought I'd better check in with you to make sure you had a good empty out and you um, got yourself a a, a Bundy or, or a rum there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I got me a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we're actually doing this. Um, it's nine nine o'clock in the morning here at, in Australia, but in America, what must be six o'clock in the evening there? Yeah, it, yeah, six in the afternoon. We're we're at the end of the day, so it's that time of day. Yeah, good, good, mate. Um, how's the COVID nineteen treating you guys over there? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's something that will forever talk about i'm sure and it's been a, quite the experience but truthfully for us we're really fortunate uh that you know we don't live downtown new york or somewhere like that i couldn't imagine what that's like but you know for us living here it's uh not much has changed really i mean we hadn't haven't been anywhere but um you know we've just been here and all the horses that are uh, in training, have remained in training, and uh, two-year-olds and three-year-olds have been just rocking along as per usual. And um, show horses have just been on a little bit, you know, lighter duties. So I tell you, we've been awfully fortunate because it'd be an awfully tough time if you owned a restaurant or something like that. So um, not much change, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and and I suppose a good shout out to all the frontline workers and mm-hmm. all the guys that are. That are there, like over there in the states and here back in Australia. The um, yeah, we need to thank those guys and they're doing a good job. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. No, there's a lot yeah. of lot of families and a lot of lives that have been impacted uh, in many different ways. It's been pretty tough on a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And um, you've uh, you've been doing a few challenges on Facebook, mate, which has been great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that thing got uh, pretty viral, didn't it? So everybody jumping on, and that was for a good cause, and it was a you know it was a good time and a little laugh, you know, kind of. I felt like it lightened uh, lightened everybody's mood up a little bit. It was something to look forward to to get on there when you'd hear someone was nominated, and um, you know, we're, I think we we're all just uh, hoping to see who was going to puke first. And uh, <laughs> I actually, I, I, yeah. after watching Sorry. it, it's become after watching, it, I think it's become pretty clear that I may be one of. Uh, only the very few that don't have a drinking problem because when you watch the way I sculled that beer, it's clear that I don't have a drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that that part of it could be a little bit controversial with the whole um, theme of it, but I think uh, especially the in the cowboy industry, um, we it's something that we don't talk about. Like I know I don't talk about it a great deal. I talk about it with my work and, there's the odd family family member, but as a rural, it's sort of the, our culture. We don't really talk about that, and I think it's taken something that is a little outside of the box that as we've all taken on as a challenge to get us talking about it. And you can yeah. throw all the you can throw all the money at it in the world, and to to make awareness and what it has achieved. The, the people that don't normally talk about it are now talking about it. Mm, for sure yeah no it's it's real good you know it's real good yeah no good good what about um we saw you nominate jesse lennox there and oh my um, god we hope, to, we, we hope to get him on this podcast and to find out exactly what was going through his mind there but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's funny though like jesse's such a good friend and and uh such a just such a great guy but uh yeah, he's 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 a really interesting guy when you when you get to know him. Um he really is like he's he's I mean he's one of the well he's the only guy that I know that has been kicked out of a bar and uh he doesn't drink and doesn't do drugs and and uh so when you watch that uh that little video right there, you know, you can imagine him in a fun party scene with a bunch of friends. Um it it gets pretty animated at times, so he was asked to leave the bar. <laughs> Purely based on just his large on life, uh, you know, uh, way of going. So, yeah, he, I, I didn't, I didn't see that coming, but um, that didn't shock me. No, well, it, it was outstanding, and I think last time I looked, it was about eleven thousand views online. So, no, it was, it was great. It was a good job. Yeah, no, it, it was full on. It was six, six small ponies and. Four wardrobe changes and six pairs of sunglasses and <laughs> <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, getting back to you, mate. So yep. we'll take you back to when you were a young fella. Mm-hmm. What uh, what's what school did you go to? I went to the uh, best school in the region. Um, it was <laughs> Grosman High. Yes, yeah, in, in Maitland. In Maitland, yep, Grossman High yeah. in Maitland. Um, there was several other uh, high schools there in the area and or schools, but 
but that was the where all the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but but yeah so i went to maitland high and um just a couple of years before i started there it was an all boys school and it was a school for men <laughs> to make men and and yeah i was and I, I think just before you started, it was like a all girls school. Uh, it was. Yeah, I just, I was, I was just wondering why you, you took the um, sissy approach. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a good question. Well, the, the simple answer to that is when I went there, when we were applying, um, the talk was there was girls at that school, and then the <laughs> school, it was still unsure of our girls. So um, that's why I went. <laughs> Uh, that's good. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> you knew that one was coming, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah I got, um, got black from you for Maitland High, and and then my wife she went to uh, the um, Saint Peter's. Uh, yeah, Peter. yeah. So that was the for the for the you know good kids, I guess. So anyway, I got black. <laughs> sides. Wait, wait, so when you were at school, um, how did you get started into the horses? Mate, um, so my mum's side of the family uh, were from Dungog and um, my grandfather and my uncle, you know, had stock horses and were involved with uh, the stock horse side of things, stock horse classes, you know, from lead classes to the ridden classes and then also camp drafting. So, um, you know, I know I went up there as a young, young kid and um to both my uncles and my grandfathers and yeah that just turned into a common occurrence weekends and then holidays and and uh it was just it was just obviously something that that grew that I probably wasn't even thinking about at the time but um was just it just sort of grew from there you know I really enjoyed it and um always used to run around the house dressed up watch old westerns and thought I wanted to be a cowboy <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. It just, um, yeah. So I guess that's where it kind of started, you know. Did you, did you, growing up, did you play many other sports? Yeah, played a lot of sports, mate. Really, that was probably, um, you know, very active in sports as a kid from a young age, from athletics to uh, played soccer for ten years, and then, uh, you know, some football and stuff through school and. Um, so yeah, played a lot of sports and did a lot of long distance running there for a little while, and and then um, you know when I be the, and then so that was all happening, and then holidays and things like that. I as I got older, I was you know still going to, to uh, my uncles and grandfathers, and you know camp drafting of a weekend and things like that, and uh it was probably around the age of 17 i'm gonna guess 16 17 in that neighborhood that um the soccer got to a point where i had to either go that direction i know i remember mum telling me you know if if you want to go this route um that you you know you'd see the see the horses or or soccer you know so um so anyway we we went the horse route so so early on were you traveling to camp drafts and competing all the time or were you just sort of, um, you know, out mastering or sort of learning to train? Like what was the sort of deal there? Yeah, so, um, you know, I mean, honestly, it's obviously been a long time, but in, in comparison to, you know, a lot of 
lot of kids. I mean, yeah, we I went to quite a few drafts as a kid, but you know, I mean, we lived for the longest time up until the age I was about uh, I don't know ten, ten, twelve, something like that in town, and then my mum and stepfather bought like twenty, thirty acres um, out towards Raymond Terrace. And, you know, I mean, yeah, we went to the junior rodeos and, you know, I'd go to as many drafts as I could. Um, but, you know, probably not, wasn't like that was full on, you know, living with a family that that's what we done by any means, you know, all the time. So I went to quite a few. And then as time went on, um, I think because, you know, I lived at home, maybe maybe that was what started in the direction of, you know, getting getting my own horse that I'd ride in the afternoon and and was interested in, you know, getting my horse broker and more trained and learning more about horse training and what I could get a horse to do and um so yeah, I, I suppose I suppose maybe looking back like if I'd have had a if I'd have had a family that had a string of horses, um, I might have done a lot more camp drafting, but maybe I wouldn't have been piddling around as much, you know, the fact that that I wasn't, you know, living at home with a family that was going every weekend. I probably, you know, had a few little project horses and then I was given a horse by Ken Rumble with my first horse. And, um, you know, so that probably led to me piddling and wanting to learn to train more possibly. I don't know. Yeah. So so who were your early influences at that stage of your life? Like for- yeah, well, well really um, – you know, my early influences at that age were my uncle, Ken Oakley, um, my grandfather, Ken Oakley Senior, Old Snow. Um, yes. You know, they, they were my first real influences as far as, you know, I mean, from the get, you know, from how to ride to how to, you know, everything, you know, how to yes. how to put a saddle on, how to blanket a horse, how to, how to, you know, teach one to lead, then building into, you know, being able to, um, you know, break my first one in, and and so that that was, you know, certainly my first, um, you know, my first influences in in that area. You know, you mentioned before, um, you did a bit of junior rodeoing. Uh, how yep. long did that career last? What did you? Uh, what were you competing in there? Yeah, mate. Um, oh, I can't really even remember how long. We, you know, she's. Probably, uh, I probably went to those for, I'm going to just guess and say four or five years, mate. Um, you know, and as most kids there do, a little bit of everything, the drafting, a lot of the sporting events, um, did a little bit of unsuccessful steer riding, got a got a, uh, a horn through <laughs> my forehead and had to get a, a plate and 10 screws. So A horn uh, through your head? Evidently, I was better at uh, barrel racing than I was steer riding. <laughs> so, what happened there? How did you get a horn through your head? Oh, they they end up running. That was the it was the steer rider, and they run some um, some like PBR bulls in, and uh, the contract. <laughs> mate, no, I just got jerked down, and, and uh, I'm sure they were just little cut horn things, and. And uh, just slapped me right underneath my helmet and just caved my forehead in like a damn Coke can, you know. Oh, yeah. so, How old were you here? Mate, I think I was 15 at the time. Yeah. And, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure your mother wasn't impressed. 
no, no, she didn't think that was a great, she didn't think it was a great idea prior to that. And then that was, she was sure thinking it was a real bad idea. By the time I got, by the time I got done and, and it didn't knock me out and I, it, I mean, it didn't really hurt that bad either, to be honest. But as I'm walking back towards the shoots, everybody's like eyes are getting really, really big. And um, all I remember wouldn't have been a minute later, like I had a massive egg on my head and um <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, they had to, they had to, yeah, do a little surgery and and plate me back together. Yeah, yeah. So, so was it like uh, you could literally stick your finger in there, or? Oh yeah, yeah. No, when I got up, I could stick my thumb into like that knuckle. Yeah. Whoa, so. No, so, so now when you go through an airport, does your metal plate go for go off in the? No, in, all good. In the metal detector. No. <laughs> <laughs> all good. Uh, but, very good. All right. So that time of your life, um, getting towards the end of your teenage years, 20s, mate, probably, I think it was about 18, you met Summer. How did you meet Summer? Uh, Summer, um, I met Summer through a mutual friend, Brendan Clark, and she well, obviously was... It was, about, it was about his 18th, was it? Yeah, that might have been the 18th right there around that time, yeah. Yeah, around yeah. the 18th. He's 18th, I should say, and um, so yeah. So and then we'd see, you know, of course she's a Maitland girl, so um, I'd run into her sort of a little bit, um, and then I think probably also through a little bit through um, you and Candace Parker and Clint Parker, and because she was all, they were all friends there with um, oh, yeah. a mental block now, but because uh, because I, I I could kind of remember um, at the start. She, she was she was off yet like she she didn't want to have anything to do with you yeah mate i don't remember that vibe i was always thinking she was really really in <laughs> i'm not saying i was all thinking that but that was how i was feeling you know i'm like yeah no she's in at all that's good you managed to convince her anyway yeah no no way it's it's good i'm lucky to have her she's she's been a big part of what's gone on in the last 20 years i know that so mm. no, pretty lucky yeah. no and, and, and a, a lot of people see that so she the backbone the backbone of, <laughs> of you you'd be screwed without her pretty much absolutely yes sir so let's um let's we're, we're working in a bit of our timeline we've grown up yep. we've done a few few camp drafts doing your radios we've met summer you're about yep. to leave school. What's the plan there? Where, where, where have you headed from there? So, mate, in like yeah, uh, we're following this timeline, and it might be mightn't be exactly accurate. But so, right there at the end of you know when you're asking about the junior rodeos and my early influences there, um, I got connected with Gerald O'Brien down there in Millers Forest. Right. Uh, I'm pretty, you know, once again through my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather and his father are really good friends through the horses, and and I'm sure I met Gerald. I don't remember exactly, but I'm I'm pretty certain it was through a you know taking a horse down to be broken in, and you know we kind of got to talking, and um then then that had turned into me going down there a little bit, and and um you know hanging out and just helping, and Gerald have me do something, whatever it was at that stage, and and then that built into um. When I moved to Miller's Forest, uh, sorry, when I moved to Duckenfield, which was just right by Miller's Forest, um, I went down and worked for Gerald for 
for some time now, I don't remember, probably a year and a half or or two years off and on there a little bit. And and that's really what um, I probably think, you know, just took the whole horse training thing to a, another level in my own mind, just, just learning more about, you know, uh, training horses and and um different kinds of horses and getting real interested in you know how to how to have an influence on a horse you know how to load the horse that that didn't want to be loaded and and how to you know fix the horse that was setting back and how to fix the you know the um you know the kids pony that was bucking the kids off so you know obviously we we broke in a lot of horses down there and a lot of you know a lot of uh polo cross and you know horses with big motors so yeah that was really probably a, a really good time that that just got me very much uh thinking about the aspect of training a horse more and more and more you know yeah yeah and and that that they were like great grounding skills oh, to, yeah. to like it's priceless really those skills that you've got to then move on to where you are now yeah totally like that's the basis of everything that i do today really i mean you know the whole cutting and some of the things i've done over here i i really don't have any idea about it um but but the understanding of the horse is what's helped me you know navigate my way through it a little bit and um you know so that all come from gerald and then he came to i'm jumping ahead a little bit but he came to the u.s after i was here and established with my chiropractic business, uh, you know, in around the 2007, somewhere like that, he came over a couple of years and I'd, you know, been gone from there and, um, you know, been in America and had all the foundation that I'd gotten earlier and got more involved kind of from the outside, but with my chiropractic business, we got a lot more involved in a performance horse world and things like that. And then, when he come back and did some clinics, um, you know, just so many, so many more things were were cleared, and and um, you know, I just I just got a whole another level of understanding and and could apply it to sort of what I do today. Yeah, fair enough. So at Gerald's, you're sort of doing a bit of bit of all sorts of horses. Like there was a big range of different kinds of horses, was there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, from you know polo cross horses to some thoroughbreds to some it might be an english horse there of some kind to um you know i mean like what whatever like a, a kid's kid's pony that was you know bucking the kids off and um so all, all kinds yeah yeah okay so then you stayed there for about a year and a half you said and then what what were you thinking were you thinking of going out on your own become a horse trainer or what were sort of your career decisions yeah. then so um yeah so i i remember i was still at gerald's i don't know if it's full time or or off and on there it's still going down when i could um but i at that point i was like eight coming just just right there around 18 from 16 to 18 probably in that neighborhood and i got a phone call um about coming to America from, from a guy that was over here, an Aussie guy. And he'd asked me about uh, coming over and giving him a hand. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool idea. I've never 
thought of going two or for far, but um, so I I remember thinking, well, gee, I don't have any money, you know, so I don't know how I'm going to get to America. So I'll never forget. I remember telling Gerald, I, my uncle was there in Dungog, and he was good enough to let me um, sort of go up there and camp at his place and 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 you know use his round pan and his arena and and facility to basically break in some horses to get enough money and. I was nervous because I remember asking Gerald, "Hey, um, I've got this opportunity to go to America, and I'm I'm kind of going to go out on my own and break some horses in." And and uh, I just remember being real nervous because I felt like I was kind of saying, "Hey, I've got this. I've been I've been down here for a little bit now, and I've got it, and I'll just go do my own thing." So I was really nervous about that. And uh, but he was awesome. He was like, "Yeah, get after it." And he he actually sent me, you know, a few different horses and and. Um, so, you know, I went to my uncle's for, and I don't remember what that period of time was, to be honest. It might have been like, I want to say maybe three months and, um, you know, broke, broke in a, a good little group of horses. Don't remember what that was, but just enough to get some cash together to uh, to head over here. So, Yeah, okay. Was, so you got a bit of money together. And then, so what was what was the work over in the US? What What did that involve? So I, I came over here to a big ranch. Um, a big, a famous ranch at the time, a place called Bar H that stood two like really, really influential stallions in the business, a horse called Dual Pep and a horse called CD Alina. And um, Andrew Waters was working at their other uh, ranch out in Memphis, Tennessee, where they kept all their brood mares and all their two-year-olds. And um, he'd asked me if I'd come over and give him a hand to break the two-year-olds in uh, for three months. So. Uh, that's what that was. I just jumped on a plane and felt like I went a lot the long way, but we eventually made it and uh, hmm. yeah, come over and started them horses. Was was that um, when you met Rick and Graham Board for the first time? Yeah. So so how that worked, and I and it's crazy because I don't have all this fitting in exactly right but as I know Rob knows I did a little bit of work with a chiropractor in Australia somewhere in that time frame originally I thought for the longest time I wanted to maybe be a horse dentist because at that time in Australia being a horse trainer was um, other than a horse breaker it didn't seem like there was such a thing and in the western discipline and um, so I thought I wanted to be a horse dentist and then we talked to this Paul Brady that was chiropracting our horses about did he know of anyone that could maybe take on a boy and he said, Let, you know, leave it with me. He got back to me sometime later and, and said, oh, this guy's busy, this guy's busy. He said, well, what about learning to do this? I thought, oh, gosh, that, that sounds pretty cool. And So I spent a little bit of time with him and during that time and, and then just traveling and talking more about the chiropractic side of things, I kept hearing of the name um, Rick and Graham Boyd, particularly Graham Boyd. He's Rick's father and he's the guy that, sort of the grandfather of it all and developed the method that we use today. That's where Donnie Tenner got his start. And so I just kept hearing of these boys. And so when I came to America uh, and was here for that three months, I was thinking, man, well, maybe I should look this Boyd guy up, you know. So I, I tracked down Graham Boyd's number and I called Graham Boyd and uh, he said, mate, I'm semi-retired or retired basically. He said, but my son has taken over uh, half the business and, and then there's another boy, an Australian 
boy, Scotty Wilson, has taken over another section of the business. Give those guys a call. So I called Scotty Wilson first. And Scotty probably, probably doesn't even remember me calling, but he said, mate, I, I, got, I got a boy, you know, um, appreciate you calling, but, you know, I don't have an opening. So then I called Rick Boyd, Graham's son, and he told me, yep, he appreciates you calling, but um, I hire an apprentice every four years. I'm going to put you on the list, and, uh, you know, when, when your name comes around, if I'm looking, I'll, I'll give you a call. I said, you know, yes, sir, thank you. That, that sounds great. I remember getting off the phone being like, yeah, I'm sure there's a list. Like, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I called him back the next night and I said, uh, hi, Rick, this is Hayden. Um, hey, I was just wondering if, if you'd mind if I'd fly to California to meet you for a weekend. And I said, that way, I said, because I'm interested and I'm going to keep in touch, but I just would like you to put a face to the name and um, – at least that way you'll know that you're interested in me or you're not and we won't have to waste any time. And he said, well, yeah, if you want to fly out, then come on. So I got on a plane on a Friday and uh, flew from Memphis to California and uh, Rick picked me up and, and uh, took me back to his place and he took me with him on Saturday, chiropractic, and, and then on the Sunday he took me to a friend's place, a friend of his, Eric Totemeyer was his name, and uh, he was cleaning up. He just bought a new place, and he was cleaning up. So we just helped, you know, whatever we were doing, just cleaning up trash and, and a bunch of stuff. So so that was all good. We just hung out, and we visited a little bit, and, and I was like, man, this is awesome. And, and uh, But I was like, okay, cool. It's time to go back. So driving back to the airport, uh, he said uh, we were driving along. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, uh, I just fired my – apprentice and if you want that job it's yours and I was like whoa and uh so I said well count me in I said I've got you know a month left on on this commitment here breaking in these horses and and I'm in so um so yeah just went from there I just I was supposed to come to America for three months and I think I had a I think I had a 12 month window but I just had that little three month you know uh, job that commitment for bar eights and then I jumped on a plane when that was over, went straight to California and, and started that uh, apprenticeship there with Rick. And, uh, yeah, that's how that got started, you know. That was a pretty big move. Like the only young guy, um, you know, that, that shows a fair bit of drive and determination. Sort of what did you put that down to? Is it just something you really wanted to do or um, is it sort of just a bit in your nature? Yeah, I guess it's a little bit in my nature. I don't know really where it comes from. Um, I don't know whether that comes from uh, being competitive or the selfish side of me or what, or just, you know, wanting to get. I mean, I, well, I, you know, when I want something, I, I kind of want it. And I, I just figured, you know, I've got to show him that I'm keener than the next guy. And, and I wasn't buying the whole list thing, you know, like. I just wasn't buying the list thing, and I didn't really want to be hanging around. So I just thought, you know what? Let's just let's just make it clear. Like either I'm going to get there and be like, no, nah, I'm I'm at, I'm not digging this, or he's going to get a vibe and be like, yeah, nah, we're not going to have this kid on the list. So I just thought it'd be, I just wanted to get it cleared up. You know, I just wanted to be more of a yay or a nay, or or give me a bit more of a feel of like, yeah, th this this 
this guy felt like we had some kind of a connection. And if I sit tight, if, if he tells me three years and I sit tight, then I may get a phone call, you know. So I just kind of looked at it that way, like, you know, I just I wasn't buying the list thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and life opportunity too, like to go mm-hmm. work with those guys that are the, that are right. well, known, well known to being here in Australia with the yellow panel van and the tennis ball. It's no comparison. It's just such an easy decision to make to, to what you, the opportunity you had here in Australia or the opportunity with those guys. It was priceless, really. Oh. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean that was that was that's probably the best decision, you know. I mean, if, you know, forty years from now, that phone call was was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how long did you stay with him? How how long did you end up working with um, Rick for? Yeah, so so like, um, it was four years all up, and um, so I did I did a year. And then I had to come home for a year. And uh, during that year, I stayed at Warwick Lawrence's. Well, so, well I, I actually, I, I rented an apartment with Summer there in Rutherford. And I was working out there at Warwick Lawrence's place in Rosebrook. He was good enough to let me break some horses in from uh, his place there in Rosebrook. And um, so I was home for the year and then came back. For the next remainder of the you know four years, so I came back for another three. Yeah, uh, and the plan the whole time was like one hundred percent doing my apprenticeship, going home. You know, I mean, I remember, I remember back when every US dollar was worth two Australian dollars, and I just at the time I wasn't making basically any money, but I can remember just thinking, oh, I just made five hundred dollars, but that's a thousand. You know, and I just was thinking. I just was thinking I was going to cash in when I come back home, and uh, so that so the uh, yeah every every single you know every plane and every dollar was coming back to Australia at, at that point, and then you know it really wasn't. It was just by chance. Um, Rick, in the third year of my apprenticeship, or right there at the beginning of my fourth year. Um, he tore his knee apart in a judo tournament and uh, had to have a very, very extensive surgery. He had to have like three cadaver ligaments put in his knee and, you know, like a two-year rehab procedure. And, I mean, it was crazy to see. And um, so that whole, you know, best part of that last year of my apprenticeship, um, I was going out and doing a lot of the work on my own with another another boy coming sort of as my helper and uh and Rick and his wife you know doing all the bookwork and scheduling and there was uh that's where I got my first real experience about you know the effects of pain medication cuz I showed up at several appointments or several several clients places on days when I was not supposed to be there cuz poor old Rick was just doped up and full of pain meds and it was funny, you know, I'd get somewhere and they'd be like, hey, Hayden, I'm like, yeah, hey. Uh, and I could tell it was kind of awkward, like they weren't like, hey, let's let's go and get a list and get started. And so we laugh about that now, you know, that he sent me places and I wasn't even supposed to be there. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a good 
has a good time. But um, so yeah, so then that last year, that last year, I, you know, kind of had to jump in and and do a lot of it myself. And and um, and then towards the end of that last year, Rick and his wife Sherry sat Sam and I down and said, "Hey, um, we're thinking of selling the business and moving back to New Zealand. Wanted to uh, offer it to you guys." So. Good life decision for you and Summer to make, and and then you carried on and made it your own. Yeah, mate. It was yeah. I mean, I just can't like I say that that right there was was huge, you know, and you know, on so many levels, you know, just just being being in America and and oh, I mean, I just can't in in so many ways, you know, with what I do now, I feel like. Oh, I got a pretty late start with the cutting horse business, you know, in comparison to, you know, guys like Taryn Rice and guys like that that are just growing up in it. But at the same time, I just got I got so much, and still do, out of my chiropractic apprenticeship and the and the people we met, you know, and the people, the horses I got to lay my hands on and be around from Kentucky Derby winners to NFR barrel horses and NFR rope horses and you know, uh, top English horses, Olympic jumpers, um, you know, top of the top end show Arabian horses. I mean, just so many different equine athletes at a, at a high, high level. Were those, uh, high end Arabian horses, were they pretty fun to chiropract? Well, you know what, this is funny. And if, if, if you hadn't asked that question, people wouldn't know the answer probably, but they honestly, are probably the best horses I work on. Um, you know, it's like anything at a high level. The quality just goes to a, another, you know, a whole nother stratosphere. And um, But the thing about chiropractic and Arabian is they have so much range of motion and the way that we manipulate a horse with using the leverage of their neck and the leverage of their limbs to adjust through their spine um, Oh, they're just like effortless, you know, effortless compared to say a, a big rodeo, you know, calf horse or head horse or something like that that's big and muscular and and uh, and stout, you know. So they actually ninety point nine 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 percent of them were just a treat. Yeah, and and, and bendy. Oh my goodness, ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> and I and I talked to a lot of. You know, obviously, with that line of work, we were in contact with a lot of veterinarians and farriers and dentists and things like that. And I talked to a lot of, a lot of farriers and that would be at those Arabian barns, and they'd be like, "Mate, um, so you, then you got um, like a bit of there, there would have been a bit of a barrier that you would have had to break down. I suppose Rick would have started it, and you and you would have experienced it between." equine chiropractors and and veterinarians Uh was 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 that a a process in developing relationships there and trust and yeah and and people that and people that would help yeah for sure mate um but really i i'm just on the back end of that so rick's father graham is the one that done all that groundwork and you know obviously when he started um there was a lot of pushback and, um, you know, he, he, he was the one that had to prove himself and prove the method and, and prove that, you know, we do have um, depth to our knowledge and 
um, he was the one that put together basically sort of, you know, the syllabus of what we learn from all our anatomy to um, learning to read x-rays. And um, I'd set an annual exam and then I would set uh, my final exam that was marked by two veterinarians and, um, and then Graham himself. So he, you know, and he got together with, with a little group of veterinarians and himself to, to, to put those guidelines together that this is Graham, of course. So, you know, he was the one that done all that. And then Rick sort of took on from there and then, and then I've just taken on from there and, and I wouldn't know how many world-class veterinarians I work with, but from, you know, California to Texas, lots and lots. And, um, and we don't have any problems at all, you know. And the biggest reason is they, we are very aware of what we can do and we're very aware of what we can't do. And, you know, I probably refer 30% of the horses, um, you know, when I was full-time looking at 2,500 horses a year, we'd probably refer 30% of those horses to, to the vet, you know. Like, and, and that was the biggest thing I got from Graham and Rick was, you know, being aware of, the whole picture and being aware of what we can't do, not claiming that we can fix every horse that we work on, you know? Yeah, for sure. So once you and Sam have bought this um, business, how long did you guys operate that out of? Um, yeah, how long did that sort of go on for? Um, well, I tell you, a kind of a cool story about buying the business was uh, looking back now, I'm like, whoa, especially when I know more about horses and know what some of the things that can happen. But, um, you know, we, we didn't have any money. And, um, so fortunately it, you know, during the time of, um, doing my apprenticeship, I was, you know, always looking over the fence and admiring some of these great trainers in different disciplines and became real good friends with, uh, one of the leading rain, rain cow horse trainers, Philip Rolls. So we'd spend a lot of time together and I mean, it was just at that age, you know, at that age I was pretty full on and it was just every afternoon and every weekend till midnight or later we'd be, you know, have the lights on and messing with a horse or talking about horse training. And so I was, you know, always just trying to further my education and, and just I knew I had that passion for the training side of things and learning more about this industry over here and I'd go to all these barns chiropractic and I'd hear all these young guys saying, man, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure I could do good. I just don't have, just don't have the right horse. And, you know, and I thought, man, everyone's saying the same thing. And seems like if, if you believe in yourself enough, you know, like buy the horse, like get a loan or something, buy the horse. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's hard to get someone else to believe in you. If, if you won't believe in yourself. So we, uh, we, I got the bargain. And, uh, so Summer and I took out a, a $20,000 loan, which at the time, like I didn't have, never had a credit card. I, I, I mean, we didn't have any money, but we got Rick and his wife to sort of co-sign for us and took out a loan. And Summer and I went on this wild, and looking back now, it's crazy. We went on this wild goose chase looking for a horse. Like we were, like we could actually, you know, <laughs> I, we, we flew to Texas and we went to a couple of these big sales and, and uh, the Polo Ranch used to be a really famous ranch and we went to there and we went to a, another sale that was on at the same time at the Hillis Aiken 
it was a dispersal sale and I like we left we I got up five o'clock I think it was a Friday morning worked all day with Rick we left that night flew through the night and then when you get to Texas it's the clocks winds forward so when we get to Texas we get here about 4 a.m we get straight in a rental car and start driving and uh, start looking at horses yearlings this we're looking at yearlings to buy to to break in and Poor summer, we get to like the second horse sale and we're sitting there and we got, I just meet this old man that another horse trainer put me in contact with and I'm trying to act as polite and as interested as I can and I'm learning a lot and I'm, my adrenaline's running and I look over and poor summer, she is crashed. She's out. She's like, I can only do so many, <laughs> so many of these horses right now. I'm done. So it was a crazy trip. And then some of the, even some of the people that I, that we met and shook hands with then. Now being here and knowing who they are and and uh, it's pretty crazy looking back. We were just two kids running around trying to, you know, bite jib somebody down that they wanted. That they wanted thirty. And we're like, oh, we're not giving thirty. There's no way. I'm going to. How about fifteen? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I had no idea at the time what the value of horses were or whatever. You know, so that's crazy. But anyway, I end up end up buying a horse way back in California that sort of. At a at a famous uh, rain cow horse ranch, the Ward Ranch, we end up buying a filly there for eight thousand, and uh, which was good because Shaw didn't really need to spend all that money. Although I tried to, we did have one. We give twenty for one and, and hit him past a vet. But anyway, we we bought this little Mister Dulpep filly, and um, it was just sort of, you know, how it all fell into place. I end up selling. We broke her in and got her started and. Really, it was just my first little trial and error. All I got to do was really get hands-on experience with her. And but um, I sold her for twenty-five, and that was really a big portion of what became helping us, you know, have a deposit to be able to buy the business. So, um, yeah, getting back to there. But that that was that was kind of a you know how that all fell into line. I mean, had I not done that, we really wouldn't have had the money to even remotely think about putting down a little bit of a deposit to to start that venture. So that all kind of fell into line and I guess was a, a good decision now looking back and I'm thankful it worked out. Um, and then we bought the business and uh, Summer and I run that ourselves uh, full-time in California and, and just basically took, you know, I was very fortunate and this is something else that I I think about. You know, I had a lot of people at the time, Rick was down and, Gosh, I was just a kid. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do, and it was a lot of money, and it, it meant a big commitment being here. So I asked some to some business people, and um, honestly, everyone I asked kind of told me, "You don't need to buy it. Like the guy's kind of done. Um, it's just a client list that you're buying, you know, and um, you know the people. You really don't need to buy it." And uh, I was like, "Man." But that just didn't sit good with me, you know, and they, they that was nothing personal towards Rick. They were just speaking strictly business, you know. They were just saying, look, you know, this is business, yes. you know. It's unfortunate, but this is business. That was nothing personal. They, But but that was kind of funny to hear that. It wasn't what I was thinking I was going to hear. And Summer and I talked about it and, you know, it was just something we couldn't get comfortable with. Rick had been so, so great to us and had become such an amazing friend that uh, it just didn't in any way, shape, or form feel right. And, you know, we it just buying the business, other than the opportunity, 
you know, it was just such the right way to move forward because I had Rick's full support. Um, you know, he, he helped me. I, I basically, I took over, a, I mean, I just walked into a full business, you know, and, and all I had to do was keep providing the same quality of service. And, um, and I had him on the phone if I needed him, which I did several times. And, um, you know, so that was worth, that, that was worth every dime that I paid for the business, you know? Mm. So whereabouts in California, like where you're living, were you just renting a place there or what was the go with that? Yeah. So, uh, I wish, I wish every, everybody that listens to this, if you ever get a chance to come to America, try, I mean, and, and it, just take your trip to California and there might be a lot of rural people that think, man, I want to go to Texas and Montana and all these cool, cool places. But if you ever get a chance to go to California and Rob's been there, get a chance to go to San Ynez, California, which is just inland from Santa Barbara. And, um, it's, it's like a, a very, very, very high end little country setting. And I'll never forget, like when I came to America, I was 18 and I'd growing up, I'd hear my family talk about a millionaire. Oh, this, they're a millionaire, you know, and I'll oh, win a million dollars. And I was thinking, man, I'm thinking there's probably, there's probably 10 of those millionaire people in the whole world. You know, that's, I mean, that's <laughs> millions of people. And, and I got to San Ynez and I was like, yep, that counts wrong because there's about 46 right here on this street. Like it's, just the most amazing manicured ranches and a lot of very, very, you know, like there's a guy there that the guy that invented the barcode, uh, uh, Shania Twain and Matchbox 20's manager. And I mean, there's just so many really wealthy business people that have gone there to buy their little ranch as they call it. And um, so anyway, that was just such an eye opener, you know, to be, and the, to get the opportunity to live there, to do my apprenticeship for four years was just unbelievable. Like probably still to this day, the best place on earth. Um, and then of course, when, when we bought the business, we rented there, which even the rent was expensive for the first year. And then we realized, you know, okay, we, we can't afford to buy a place here. So, um, we moved up the road. Um, we moved up the road probably, gosh, now. It's about five and a half, six hours up the road to Northern California, um, which was really good. We, we, you know, we went up there and rented to start with and we ended up buying a, just a little five acres and a house up there. And that was really good. Um, it meant I stopped going to the racetrack. We used to go to the racetrack uh, two days a week, every Monday and Tuesday to uh, uh, Hollywood Park and Santa Anita racetrack in LA. So it kind of meant walking away from that side of the business a little bit, which was really big um, because they wanted you there every you know week like that. And, but that was just a decision that, you know, we made financially. We just had to, we couldn't stay where we were. And it was also something that, you know, I just didn't understand that industry as well. Like I felt, I felt very comfortable talking to people in other disciplines um about the, what their horse was doing you know problem wise and trying to put the big picture together and i really felt like you know if i wanted to stay at the racetrack i really needed to get more 
educated about racehorses, you know, because I wanted to be able to talk with a racehorse trainer. And when he was saying that his horse went, you know, two furlongs this morning um, in such and such a time, I didn't want to have to stand there with a blank look trying to look at his face like, is he, is this, is he happy or is he sad right now? I can't tell, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether that's fast or slow. So, uh, so yeah. when when you you moved to North California, and now you're you're on the road a lot, and you you did have the the odd horse there that you trained to show in the rank cow horse, right? How how right. how did you get that? How did you get that done by by traveling from different yeah. places all the time, but, never been home? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were young, you know, so it was uh, Summer and I were on the road nine months of the year, the first couple of years. Um, and then after my, after probably owning the business for a year, we bought that house and, um, you know, now we were kind of making a, a better income. And so then I, I, uh, I still had the burn to now that I was, you know, the boss and was controlling my own schedule a little bit was to, was to keep educating myself and, and, um, you know, tr being involved with training horses. And, and, um, so we did, we, you know, everywhere I'd go, we ended, it got to that, to the point where we take a trailer and we were given a little dinky ass two horse trailer from a client. And we drug that down the road with a stallion and a mare. And I was given the mare, like we bought the stallion for 5,000. Yes. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I just schedule it accordingly. You know, I'd go to someone's place and we'd, um, you know, if there was really one big day, if there was one big day of, of chiropractor, maybe I'd schedule two days, you know, and we'd do, we'd do three quarters of the horses there and then I'd ride with them in the afternoon and which was fabulous depending on where I was and who I was with. I was always able to learn something and, and then, we'd do the remainder of the horses the next morning and move on. And, you know, we just go from place to place. It was, you know, basically, like I said, on the road nine months of the year. And, um, you know, that was pretty awesome when, when I really think back, you know, like I just got to pick so many people's brains on a different level. Like if I had been an, for those that are not familiar with what it's like working for a performance horse trainer, <clears throat> A lot of times when you are working for them, you, you very much start at the bottom and you're just a shit kicker and, and depending on who you're working for, you're just doing a lot of grunt work. You're not doing a lot of learning. You're really not, you know, and, and it's just a, it's just the way it starts and, and you just got to keep hustling and, and, and want it bad enough and, and it'll come. But I think me going in there as somebody that they respected and were paying for a service it, it just got me, I got exposed and I, I got access to a lot more information that I'm, than I may have got if I was just working for them, loping horses around, you know. So I think that was really, really cool. Yeah, and you, and you were able to keep control of your, your destiny of, of the direction that you wanted to go in. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, it, it was kind of a, looked a bit like a damn circus going down the road sometimes, but but it was definitely it was definitely building, you know, building towards. And I, and I don't think at the time, I don't think I ever was like, 
yeah, I've got to, I'm going to keep doing this because I want to, um, you know, I'm going to be a horse trainer per se. But I think in, in a way I did feel like I was, I, I done my chiropractic apprenticeship. I, I kept working hard and kept that business going. And then it was nearly like I just started into another apprenticeship, you know, as I was chiropractic horses, I was constantly, you know, asking questions and writing with different people and, and further educating myself that way. Yeah, so carting those two, the, the mare and the stallion around, did it, did it pay off? Did you get success out of those horses? Yeah, it did. It did. So so the one horse, um, I showed him at the Snaffle Bit Futurity in the non-pro and, um, you know, it was good. I think I finished... Uh, ninth in the non-pro, I, I won the rain work. I marked a 222 in the rain work uh, first go, and that was actually the high rain work score of the whole show, open and non-pro, which um, which was neat, you know, because that was, I mean, I'd had an understanding of getting a horse broke and I'd had an understanding of like a, you know, working class or a hat class, but it's the whole Western way of riding and more of the reigning discipline is so different really. So that was neat. And then um, my cutting, my cutting was now when I look back at it, I, I watch it periodically. If I'm feeling really down about myself and my horse training, <laughs> I go and I watch the cutting video. And um, only that the, I think I had a hold of the actual rings of the snaffle. That's, you could tell that I was definitely American because I remember Boyd Rice telling me, lengthen your reins. And I'm like, I got them, I got them lengthened, you know, but now when I watch, I think I had them about like six inches long. So, but that was, that was massive. You know, I, I just, I, I, and that's maybe really what happened. I think, I think I really tried to educate myself on, you know, the rain work and, and, and how to get these horses to run and slide and spin around. And in my head, just being ignorant, I guess, I kind of was like, yeah, I've camp drafted, so I can do this fence work stuff. And, you know, camp draft, work in the cow, same thing, no big deal. And that was, looking back now, just completely and utterly incorrect because um, my herb work, I think I marked a 209, but it was atrocious. Like my horse obviously was broke and stopped and did all that stuff, but when we were trying to work a cow, I mean, we were mouth-gapped and sliding by and I mean it was just terrible you know and that was a big like really huge moment for me to be like well, how come you know why why can I have such a big rainwork score and I think I mean I've worked a cow some especially I'm sure I've worked a cow more than some of these folks that are in this non-pro class and yet that was terrible you know and then really my my fence work wasn't much better and a big part of that was you know, the actual experience of, of the, the event. I just didn't really know the t how important the positioning and timing and so that I was I was off in those areas. But but still in all, looking back now, I just was relying on my horse's control to make him do the job. Um, so, you know, like I say, it was, it was not good and really that's what I had some success and, and it was good. But it, it very much opened my eyes to, yeah, okay, I really, really need to learn how to work a cow better because that was not good. And um, 
what drew you to the rain cow horse? Was it just being in that California area where it's pretty pretty dominant, or yeah, you know, how come you went that road? Yeah, so two things uh, would be for sure. Like, so yeah, a, a really really big, um, you know, a really big rain cow horse community out there in California, and and a lot of our clients, rain cow horse clients, and then my best friend out there, Philip Rolls. Um, was a young guy and his dad's Ron Rolls, the famous cow horse trainer. So I, so that's who I was sort of directly in contact with. And then I think the biggest thing was it just felt so familiar, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of like a ridden class, the rain apart. So I was like, Oh yeah, I understand that a little bit. And, and then down the fence, I'm like, well, that's kind of like camp drafting. So I think it, I think that was just a comfort level. It, it was much more for a natural progression. And, um, I think that's really what it was. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, very good. So you're in, you're in California, mate, and um, you you buy yourself a pup, a um, mm-hmm. black and tan black and tan right wheeler, and you call her Wheeler. Right. Yeah. You, you you tell us a little bit about her. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe like in second year. We, uh, we, when we bought that place, my wife, um, was going, you know, we just had, we had a few more commitments. We had, you know, animals there, some horses, we built a little barn, different things. So I got an apprentice and, uh, so someone was going to be home on her own quite a bit and it was a good neighborhood, but I was just always concerned that she'd be worried, you know, being home alone at night and things like that. So I thought, oh, I'll get a, get a dog, you know? And then I was like, oh, if I'm going to get a dog, I'll get one of these, like, badass ones that bite someone so i did a little <laughs> did a little i did a little research and uh talked to i talked to uh a good friend of mine that was really tight with tony mccallum and uh tony was like oh you want to get one of these uh belgian malinois they're like a border collie on steroids and uh so i get pretty wound up about things when i start getting into it and so i just got I just started researching and researching and watching videos and anyway, long story there. The Malinois is cool, but it's just a lot. It's a lot of dog and high energy. So I'm like, no, nah, I don't want that. I want something that's that's a little more laid back, not so high drive. So we end up buying a, a Rottweiler, and uh, so I bring her home and and we raise her and we follow basically all Tony McCallum's methods of raising this pup and. And uh, I build a big kennel for her outside our back window there. And and I'm just itching for this dog to hurry up and grow up. You know, I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. She's going to be a man. And uh, so, like, and once and she got to about the ages of eight, ten, nine months old, you know, I was, I was just watching her like a hawk thinking, you know, someone will walk around the backyard and, and she'll just be going crazy. And uh, I had an old, at the time, I had an old neighbor that was had electric fenced off a little paddock there at the back of the house and was, had some cows out there. And I'd see him coming down the road early in the morning or later of an afternoon. And I'd be like, Oh, you watch this. is going to be awesome. This dog is going to go crazy. And I'd be watching this dog and this dog would sit there and she'd be laying down and he'd walk down and she'd look over at him and she'd just lay there panting. And I was like, Oh my God, I should have bought a lab. Should have bought a lab <laughs> or a little, little friggin' toy. Just, now I've just got a toy dog that eats a lot. And uh, I was just, oh, I was sick. I was like, this is, 
this is terrible. And I remember talking to Tony McCallum and saying, like, what's the story? He said, no, don't worry. He said, she knows. She, she, she's, she sees the pattern. She knows who's acceptable and who's not acceptable. And, and um, so he put me in contact with a guy down here in Texas, a name by the name of Butch uh, Capel. And um, Butch has trained protection dogs for the president. He's had a guard dog business in El Paso, which is right on the border, which is a very bad neighborhood. And uh, he got me hooked up with Butch to, to you know, because now this bitch is getting to the age that, you know, I guess we've got to start training her to, to do all this badass stuff because right now she's not doing any of it. And uh, I talked to him and I remember him telling me, he's like, oh, don't worry, she's, she's a Rottweiler. He said, all it's going to take is somebody to stare in the eye and it is going to piss her off. And I'm thinking, wow, well, I hope so because she looks really friendly right now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'll never forget the day. I mean, this is clear as a bell. I had a tide in the back of the truck, and Summer and I are coming back from town, and we pull up to a set of lights, and she's tied there, and there's a, a little sports car beside us, and there's this guy in the sports car, and he's got his window down, and he's kind of looking over at us, and I'm looking over there, and, and then I see him spot the dog, and he, he, uh, he just stares at her. And, and and she sees him and he, he, I mean, he just looks at her and, and he was looking at her more like, oh, dog. And this dog freaked out. I mean, she, there was slobber. I mean, she was going crazy. And I was like, yes, yes. And uh, <laughs> I was like, she's not a Labrador. And uh, I mean, I was so excited, so excited. So then from then, we just uh, we just kind of you know went from there, and that turned into a whole crazy venture. But um, we end up, you know, I learned how to train her and mess with her a lot, and um, she ended up making an awfully nice dog. We end up getting involved with a it's called um, Canine Pro Sports, which essentially is just kind of kind of a redneck, uh, you know. Not backyard, but it, essentially it's just a real-life scenario about dogs that, that are, you know, protect people and, and um, it's not a sport-related thing where you get one really broke and do the same pattern. It's just real-life scenario. And um, so I got, you know, then I started coming back to Texas, chiropractic some horses. So we'd, we'd, um, we'd bring our trailer with our horses so I could ride with several of these cutting horse trainers and then I'd bring the dog and then we'd, We'd work chiropractic and horses, train, you know, learn a bit about training these cutting horses, and then I'd jump in the truck with this Rottweiler and we'd drive to Burleson and work with this guy about training this dog. And um, she ended up, yeah, awesome. We, we won two world championship in the, in the canine pro sport protection trials. And, um, like, she just turned into, like, this beast, you know. Like, she would bite anything I told her to, and she loved it. So, yeah. I mean, oh, we, yeah, caught, we, caught, we caught, we caught, I mean, she was, she just turned, I mean, she was for a Rottweiler female too. And obviously she's a female and not, not a big male, but she was a, she was just a good size. She was only really about a 60, 55, 60 pound dog. And, um, she was athletic and, um, yeah, she just turned into be like, just awesome. You know, we had a lot of fun. I think, I think, um, anybody and everybody that's met you 
one thing that they would remember about you would be that dog. Yeah, no, she was fun and she was always fun. You know, on on a Friday night barbecue or something, you get some old mate talked into putting the bite suit on and it was always a good time. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, what about, uh, mate, a little trip to, um, uh, it was about that about the same time um, we went to Las Vegas and we goes into the Copenhagen stand and we thought we're going to be real cowboys and try to chew some tobacco. Maybe you, maybe you should tell that story, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, um, I, 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 we went through the little videos and that, and we, then we get to the the counter, and all I want is me free Copenhagen shirt and some and some chew, thinking I'm going to be a, a champion. And those boys seen me coming, and they put the made us. Do they make you and me both take take a bit? Can you remember? No, just you because I shied away from it because I'd already had my experience prior. So, yeah, we're at the uh, yeah, Thomas and Mac. I watched them at NFR and I'm, and I'm thinking this this is going to be the best ever. I'm going to be here chewing some Copenhagen, watching the NFR. Yeah. And these guys see me come and they made me wait until I turned green before <laughs> they'd leave with me three tin of Copenhagen and I tell you what, it took all my strength and all my willpower to to not pass out. I don't know what it was going to do to me, but I, I did not enjoy the first 20 minutes until that started to wear off of the NFR. Like, I don't think I remember even being there for the first half of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, that's very true. My, my favourite Rob Parrish Copenhagen story was... Uh, <laughs> When you came to my place there in Northern California, and the I tried Copenhagen when I first got over here, and I was young and it was just messy, and I was like, yeah, whatever, not into it. And then uh, several years later, I don't know, probably about five, four six, years. Seven, yeah. Well, this was before that when I had my experience, and we were at a oh, at yes. a bar, Philip Rolls, and we it was a Friday night, and we were all there drinking and. And he had a boy, just a 16-year-old country kid there with him, and he's always dipping. And he's like, you want some Copenhagen? And I'm thinking, man, I've been in America long enough, and it's sort of pretty cowboy to chew tobacco. And I think I'm pretty cowboy, so, yeah, yeah, give me some of that. <laughs> and uh, I big old dip in. And uh, I remember that right when I first put it in, I felt like Ty Murray. I had this big dip, and I was like, this is cool as hell. And I'm drinking my beer. We, we that leads into, hey, you guys want to go out? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's go out. So I said, well, someone and I are going to run home here, and I'll just get changed, and we'll go. And uh, that was the end of it. When I got back to the house, I spent the next <laughs> couple of hours in the backyard. So I, I had that experience. So and I was like, huh, wonder how old Rob Parrish goes on the tobacco. <laughs> so he when he was in. The backyard, and I think this was uh, this was after that I'd seen how green he got at the NFR. We, uh, I had these. I had it's it's kind of a little bit of a starter pack, or it's it's they're in these little, uh, they're in the it looked like a, a mini tea bag is what it is. They're in these little packets, and it's cleaner, and you don't get the tobacco everywhere. So I put I, some. I had some some um, chico babes. Some I had some chico babes in the house. So I grabbed one of those and put it in my lip. 
which looked identical. And I went outside and opened this can and said, hey, and we're, we're roping the dummy and it's not and we've been drinking. I said, Rob, here, get you some of this. It's good. And it's way better than that stuff we had in, in Vegas. <laughs> so he, he sticked one in there and it was about half an hour and it was Rob's night over. He was at the, <laughs> he was in the bathroom just going at it. So, <laughs> I drove, well, I drove that bus, mate. That, that doesn't matter. The, um, the Dunnies in Australia and the Dunnies in Australia doesn't uh, in America it doesn't matter whether you they're they're left-handed or right-handed you, you still drive them the same. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yep. So that was dro- that was a good. I, I drove that porcelain bus and it was poor summer. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm sure she had to clean up after me. A little bit. <laughs> Well, Hayden, you ended up moving down to uh, Texas. So what was the attraction there and how did you end up there? Yeah, so um, uh, really, you know, the economy was kind of getting bad in, in California and I was just, just my chiropractic business. I was having a lot of horse trainers move that direction, you know, and I started going back there more making like four trips a year, which it's a, like a 33-hour drive from where we were. We used to do it. Sometimes we'd stop and sometimes we'd drive straight through. So it was a big trip and um, it was just getting that way. I suppose I was getting older and, and starting to think, man, you know, this being on the road all the time and all this traveling starting to get a bit old. I'd, I'd sure like to be home a little more. And, and then at that point, I had... Um, uh, in maybe like 2009, I had bought my first cutting horse, uh, a little highbrow cat mare, and I uh, so I was starting to get more involved there, and we we trained and showed her, and so I was really starting to get, you know, way more. I decided that this cutting is is really what I enjoy. Um, I want to learn more about it. My chiropractic. Uh, I had some clients move in that direction to Texas. And then it just made sense. Um, there's such a concentration of horses here in Texas in a small area. So I was like, well, you know, logistic-wise, um, that makes a lot of sense for my chiropractic business. And then as far as the cutting horse side of things goes, it's, um, it's just the place to be. If you want to cut, this is, this is where you need to be. And how come you wanted to get into cutting? Mate, I think uh, I'll send you that video. I'll send you that video of of me uh, showing at the Snapple bit that year, and then you'll you'll clearly see. But I mean, that was the start of it. Like, whoa! And uh, and then I think once I started to, you know, research more and and get further educated, and I don't remember the year. And and I'll this is was really cool. I'll never forget this. Um, I wish I could tell you, but Summer and I came back to Texas. You know, we'd never really been to a cutting. We might have been to a couple of little things, but we came back to Fort Worth and watched the the Super Stakes five, six-year-old final um, at Fort Worth. And uh, I, I, just, I just never, ever knew that horses could do what these horses were doing. Uh, I remember seeing Tag Rice show a horse called Mr. Beeman, a grey gelding. Mm. And and both of Summer and I were just like, oh my god, like that is crazy. So that 
that just was that just lit something inside me. I was like, that's I've got to I've got to do that. I've got to ride one of them someday, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I think the the need and the want to get better about working a cow, and then once I started to look at it more, seeing that what the horses could do and 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 how it come from within the really good horses i was like yeah I'm, i've got to learn more about this yeah okay fair enough and so when you were in texas where where did you move to exactly um you know where did you yep. stay out or where did you train out of or what was going on there so when i first came back i um i was really fortunate uh, and once again, I mean, these doors probably wouldn't have opened other than for my chiropractic business. But I was able to uh, rent some stalls at Bar H with uh, where Paul Hansmer trained. And, you know, Paul's won over $6 million. He's he's known as one of the best horse trainers in our business, uh, one of the greatest guys in our business. Um, he's just him and his brother, Winston, um, you know, they're just the best and and um so to be able to like move in there for four years and just observe and and um you know start at, at that point when i moved I, I that was 2010 so i'd cut my chiropractic business down and and uh had just you know basically give up my non-pro card after a year and was going to take some outside horses as a cutting horse trainer so you know at the time it was probably, probably had 10 horses in training and and um was still chiropracting a lot and but but to be able to be there and kind of you know have my own business and and call myself a, a professional horse trainer as such but still be kind of under the wing of of a of a legend like that was was just awesome you know yeah for sure just going back just a little bit there, um, your first cutting horse mare when you were still a non-pro, how, how did you go with her when you were showing her? Yeah, no, I did. I did good. She was a fun little horse. Um, we, um, I won a couple of non-pro futurities on her on the west coast, and um, ended up winning about fifty thousand on her, and then we sold her. And I mean, it was awesome, you know. I mean, she she was great. She was a great little horse and she, you know, she was really, um, she was fun, you know. I mean, she, once again, she was just sort of a stepping stone and, a, and a, you know, like an early model car, you know. She uh, she may not have had some of the things these ones today have, but, um, gosh, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing whatsoever. So it was it was pretty cool. And she was the first one I trained and she was the first one I'd ever rode. I I actually never, I've, I've never rode a cutting horse prior to her. I'd never got to really, you know, sit on another one or or, or show another. I mean, she was it. So she got, I'm sure she had some confusing days because I know I did. <laughs> so, and, and and you went straight to the top. You, what was her breeding? Uh, she was a highbrow cat, yeah. Yeah, so like... The little bit of research that I had done, I say little, it was probably a lot, but um, it was very clear to me when I was getting into this cutting that, okay, if you're going to do cutting, you need to ride a highbrow cat. Um, that that yeah. part, that part, I was like, I've got a lot to learn. I mean, I don't know anything about 
how to ride one, how to show one, how to train one, but everything that I have researched says you need to ride a hybrid cat. So I bought one of them. And then when you go pro, what yep. were, you had a few show horses then after that. How, what were they, mate? Yeah, well, so um, um, it, I mean, it was really cool. So, like, when I and, and this is a big thank you to you. Like, um, when I went pro, I was really a nobody, of course, and I I really got a little bit of I did well on that mare, which which helped got me a little exposure, and and then um, I got a I had a you know because of my con chiropractic business, I probably had some doors open. Some, some people that knew me and thought they'd give me a shot, but but uh, Rob was good enough to mention uh, my name to a good friend of his, uh, Forrest Saunders, and um, Forrest was interested in in purchasing a horse, and so um, that just led into like an awesome relationship. We we bought Forrest a uh, Pepto Boonsmore stud, proud little Pepto, and um, we also bought him a WR mare, Cat's Date. And, um, man, like looking back, it was just like, it felt, I don't know why, but it just felt so easy back then. And we had a lot of success with those two horses. And looking back now, I didn't, I didn't know near what I know today, but yet it felt like it was working. And, um, one of the things with that, that I laugh about now is, um, we had I had both those horses for Forrest, and they were really the only two show horses I had. And um, <laughs> I showed the mare at the small futurities. Now our small futurities start in August, and there's a number of them. There's there's probably six to eight small futurities all over the country. And then the big futurity in Fort Worth, it's in November. You can only show two horses, and those horses cannot be shown anywhere else. So I thought, well, I'll show this mare at the small futurities and I'll keep the stud, Proud Little Pepto, for the big futurity. So I go to uh, West Texas, which is the first small futurity, first time I've ever shown the open. And uh, mare was good, but I had I made a little pilot error. I, you know, tangled a card or something happened. And then we go to another show and... I mark a 212 and it takes a 213 to advance to the second go. So I miss that. And, you know, I'm still learning and I'm learning about having clients and dealing with all that. And Forrest is just great, you know, but you, like you do, you, you're worried about making the phone call and saying that we didn't do good and how they're going to handle it. And he was always just awesome. Move on to the next one. So the being from California, the, the biggest small futurity that there is is in Paso Robles, California, the West Coast Futurity, and it's in October. Well, it's like 32 hours from Texas, and I've got one horse. And I, I think to myself, well, yeah, like I'm a cutting horse trainer now, and I've got, I've got a small Futurity horse, so what do you do? You go to these small Futurities, so we're going to load up. We're going to go to California. So we load this mare up and we take proud little pep dogs so we can keep working him. And I take some two year olds with me cause I didn't have any three year olds or other three year olds or any other horses to speak of. So we head off with a, I had to borrow a trailer cause I didn't have a trailer big enough and we drive 32 hours and, and get all the way out there. And, um, long story short, it goes great. I end up second. I win 30 odd thousand 
and uh, it was just cool on so many levels. It was it was something that you know had had I not had the support of Forrest to make me feel comfortable about re-entering and going again, I'd have never gone, and therefore I'd have never done good. And um, it was just a really cool trip. But now when I look back at it, now that I've got more experience, it's like if I, if I don't have a like a trailer load, I don't want to drive an hour because it's that difficult. And and the idea of driving <laughs> 32 hours with one horse, I'm like that is the stupidest thing you could ever do. I mean you could have Chiquita Pistol and it's still a dangerous <laughs> because – You've got to, you, you're banking all on one horse. There's all the expense to get there. There's all there's all the factors that can go into it. And I and I I never I mean I didn't know any of that. So I just was like, yeah, come on, let's roll. And uh, for it to work out was just looking back now was just amazing, you know. So that well, was cool. Well, well, it was that close that uh, I'm pretty sure from memory that you were leading it all the way and Morgan, up to the last horse. Yeah, Morgan Kramer was one of your California mentors. And yeah, um, and she she rolled by it right at the end. Um, but you, you mm-hmm. still did well to be reserve champion. But I, I know yeah. from um, and you've probably heard Forrest and Kim talking about this, but they were pulled over the, on the side of the road with his work laptop and his little portable internet, and he's he's watching it live streaming. And the pair of them are, are so excited, they're like, Wow, you know. We could come third, like the last couple of horses are coming through, and yeah. we could come third, or or now we could come second, and then like shit, I, I think we've got this, and then they lose service, they lose, they lose. Oh. So, <laughs> so, so just as Morgan was walking over the timeline, they they lose all television. It's it's stopped. So then it takes yeah. them a good half hour to get reconnected and. And I'm pretty sure it took them hours of suspense to know whether or not they were champions or, or reserve champion. But either way, they yeah. were stoked. They were, they were so happy. But for the, for that yeah. to happen, and yeah, it was just a great story. And I'm I'm sure that they've that they couldn't have been happier than with what their mayor did. Yeah, well, and that's a big thanks to you and 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 Forrest and Kim because it just shows you like. It was only the belief that that you and and those guys had in me that that gave me that opportunity and made me even feel comfortable doing it, you know. And and now looking back, that was the only thing because I didn't even give it a second thought. I was like, "You bet, of course we can. Let's roll." But now I'd be like, "Whoa, hang on, guys. That's that doesn't sound like a very good idea, you know." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Look, look, look what look what come out of it. It was it was. Outstanding yeah. result. So yeah, that's um, cool. Through this time period, I, I obviously only had a couple of show horses, but were you, um, you know, obviously you're doing two year olds as well. But did you have a couple of your own? Were you buying and trading a few of your own, or what was the go there? Well, at this point, um, at this point, no. Um, I, I had I had approached a guy in California. Or maybe he'd approached me when when I, he'd approached me when he'd heard I was going out on my own, and he'd asked me to come out to his ranch and uh, and look at some of his babies. And uh, he's you know like I've got seven yearlings right here. Would you would you take one of these? You're going to go out on your own, da da da. 
and I remember telling him, which God, I can't even believe I had the balls to say this now. I was really on this highbrow cat kick, I guess. But I said, no, I, I wouldn't. I'm not going to take any of these, but I'll buy you one if you want. And um, and once again, I mean, I know, I know, Summer was like, got back in the car, and she's like, "What did you just do? Are you kidding me? You just told this guy you won't ride any of his horses that he raised." And uh, but but thankfully enough, he agreed to it. He he, I told him. He said, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, look, from what I can research, um, these highbrow cats. I mean, it just seems like." statistically they just do so well and and i've and i've researched and i've seen for the last five years that you can buy a highbrow cat between you know sort of twenty eight thousand and thirty five thousand. and um he said you know what if you can buy me one for that that you think's the kind then i'm in so that um that started me down the road of, of looking for that uh, that horse and I looked at a lot of horses and, and for anyone that's been over here to the Futurity, you, you got to see there's basically a week of horse sales and um, so I hit the road, you know, in October and it doesn't start till November and the horse sales are not till December and uh, but I just started looking at yearlings, looking at yearlings, looking at yearlings and I, I got the catalogue and I marked Every highbrow cat there was stud stallion, because statistically there once again they were had proven to be the better horses. So so, so mate, just, um, mate, uh, just just touching on that, you with your chiropracting and, and seeing and 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 feeling and 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 and, and memorizing all the characteristics of all the champions that you've touched over the years. Huh. That's sharpened your eye to this point in your life to ID to identify the, the future yeah. champions. Yeah, I believe it has, and I and I didn't know that at the time, but now that I've you know learnt more and and become really passionate about uh, educating myself on what the great ones look like and and realise how important that is, I do believe that helps so much. I didn't know it at the time, but. But now I, I can see that the greats are the greats. They all look the same. Um, there's the, and that sounds silly because you've got thoroughbreds and you've got barrel horses and you've got. But there's there's something about them all that there's a common denominator that they all have. And once you can identify that, um, you know that's what I look for. And and it, it, I didn't realize that that was that was happening, but 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 it did. You know. That was something that through all my chiropractic, getting to look at such great horses at such a high level, I was able to develop. So, um, you know, and then and then narrowing that down to the cutting horse industry, you know, thinking about these highbrow cat studs, I got to work on and see several of the really good ones and, and develop an eye for like, okay, the good highbrow cat studs look like this and the good highbrow cat studs move like this. Um, which, you know, not to, I don't want to backtrack and get in a circle here, but as as you guys know, is so different than what what we were raised with, with the stock horses and things like that. So I had to totally change what I was looking for and I had to get so comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and, and I had to get so comfortable with things that, that I 
weren't familiar with, you know. Um, yes. It's a totally different, totally different style of horse. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think very much so. And so we started looking. I made a list of all the highbrow cats and um, I I narrowed it down to like three horses. And um, there was a horse, uh, highbrow Jackson. He was at a fitting farm and he was in a dispersal sale. It was Mr. Kenneth E. Jackson. This gentleman had passed away and um, he had a bunch of horses there that very high powered, very well bred, extremely well fitted. I mean, the people that were, um, fitting and preparing these horses for the sale did an amazing job, amazing job. And I just, I'll never forget the day I seen that horse. Like he was tied in there, standing to the wall, and I walked in the barn, and he was on the left, and like he just looked at me, and it was like crazy, and um, it was um, yeah, like it, it, it was really, really cool, just to see how how confident and, and, and like just, just at peace he was. He was just standing there like, what's up? And um, so they brought him out for me and, and um, you know, I was like, wow, this is, this is cool. And, and uh, we took him to the round pen and moved him round and like he just about fell over every other stride when I moved him. Like it was, it was something that I was like, well, this seems to be what the other ones move like, but this is not good. I'm just going to ignore this right now. And it was hard to ignore that because he didn't look like any kind of an athlete at all. Yes. And uh, so anyway, he, he was just a, he was high on the list, but you never know, you know, I don't know if I can afford him. So I had two or three others and, and um, so I go to the sale and the first two sell and he's the last one. And I didn't get the other two bought and, and I purposely wanted him but I wasn't going to wait on him because I didn't have any idea at that point what he'd bring. But I just by chance, I didn't happen to buy the others. So he comes in the sale ring and uh, uh, Tom Williamson was sitting in front of me at the time when I bought him. And um, I, I give 40000 for him. And uh, this gentleman, I told this gentleman that, that I would go to thirty five, And uh, I never forget, I was just sweating because I'm like, I can't, I'm in the sale ring. I don't have this guy on the phone. Um, Summer and I didn't really talk about buying this horse with our own money, but I've got him. I'm not letting him go for another, whatever it is I want him. <laughs> yes. So um, we, uh, so I bought him for 40,000 and, and um, made the phone call and said, look, sir, I'm, I'm, uh, I bought a horse. I give more than we had talked about. Uh, if that's okay, he's yours. If that's not okay, then I'll take care of it. So, he said, no, that's fine. And yeah, it just kind of went from there. He turned out to be a, a, a huge deal and a big, big deal for me. Um, you know, the, the, the way, um, he, he was, he was in the two-year-old sale. It was the first year I took a horse to the two-year-old sale. And, uh, back then, you know, high selling two-year-olds were bringing a hundred thousand. And, um, I was really started to get interested in that. And probably I think really looking back, it, a big part of that was that I felt like that was an obtainable goal. Like I didn't have a show string to speak of and was still inexperienced. And I thought, man, if I can get these two-year-olds working nice and, and present them, um, two things I can help, you know, I can help build a ranch for Summer and I and 
I can also, it's a little bit of a stage that I can, you know, sort of be seen on that I feel like I can compete at. So uh, we took Highbrow Jackson to the sale. We actually had an offer early on him for um, 100,000 and we turned it down. And at that time, I didn't have any idea what he was worth. I didn't have any idea what a high dollar horse was worth. So I couldn't advise the gentleman at all. And um, he, uh, these people backed out. They were going to buy him, and they backed out. And they, they said, uh, no, the, the trainer told the client, just let him go to the sale. We'll, we'll bid on him at the sale. And um, anyway, I made a video of him, and he turned in to be a really, really nice horse. And uh, the, he went through the sale, and, and he no-sailed for 315000 And... Um, you know, that was just a crazy experience. I mean, I had no idea. The, the client, he didn't tell me what his reserve was. He did, There was so much hype over the horse leading up that he didn't even know what to do. And it wasn't until I walked in that he put a reserve on the horse with the agent. And um, so that was that was huge. That opened a lot of doors and, and really opened my eyes to like, oh, my goodness, like that could have been my money, you know. Like so um, Summer and I that next year, bought some yearlings and uh, have you know for the next probably six or seven years thereafter um, sold several you know quite high dollar horses yes and at that time uh, highbrow Jackson he he broke records of at the sales yeah yeah he did mate he did and you know it's he it's funny it's kind of cool but the, he went on to uh, to make the Futurity Finals. I think he was either third or fifth at the Futurity. And, um, you know, he, uh, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people today still say that he's the best two-year-old they've ever seen. And, um, you know, it's hard now looking back. I've had a lot of horses since. So it's, it's so hard and I, I know a lot more now than I did then. So, but he was certainly a, a really cool individual. And, I mean, he was, he did a lot for me, you know. So did you feel like, Highbrow Jackson almost, you know, probably was one of the more defining horses that got you out there, like really put your name on the yeah, map. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt. Like that just really, I mean, that, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's people today still talk about him, you know, and, and um, so it was just a really neat experience and, um, you know, it, that that just kind of led into me believing in myself, I'm sure, and, and, and gave me a little bit more of a an idea that, you know what, I, I can go and buy yearlings for 20000 and, you know, with my own money and, and you know, later on given forty and fifty and 60000 for yearlings. Like it, it just gave me the confidence that, that, that that's even possible, you know. I mean, if, if I had never had him and sold him for that, I'd be way too scared to give that those kind of numbers for for babies that are unbroken, you know. So, um, yeah, he did, he did a lot for me and it was it was really cool. Yeah, so there, there, there was a number of them for, from from Jacko onwards. There was there was Jacko's brother the following, full brother the following year. And, um, yeah. There, 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 was, there was too many for me to remember, but what are some of the standout ones that you've trained as a yeah. two-year-old and then – and then got them got them sold to the to the right people, and they've gone on to the show pen and and their, their achievements. Yeah, well, there was some there's some really uh, neat horses. There's been quite a few, but like um, then but I, like I sold Highbrow Jackson's brother 
um, the following year. He brought uh, 210, and um, he was a really nice horse. Summer and I owned him, and, and he uh, he had a little bit of an injury and, and career was cut short. And then the following year we sold a – it was the first year of the Metallic Cats. I'll, I'll never forget that. And we bought a filly, um, a mare called Metallic Lil Cat, and we also brought another cat stud. I was pretty – you know, on that cat stud thing, of course. So I bought another cat stud called um, Paradox Cat. And yes. And we, uh, we sold the mare for 190 and she was the high seller that year and the first metallic cat to go to sale. And um, she went on to she went on to make the Futurity Finals and, and win, uh, over, I'm not sure where she finished, but uh, somewhere over 150000 and was a really, really nice horse. Um, Paradox Macat. Paradox Cat, sorry, that same year brought like 124,000. And he went on. Austin Shepherd won Augusta on him. And then a young lady by the name of Blakely Colgrove, who's a, I mean, there's two, there's two girls over here, two sisters that are amazing show women. And uh, Blakely showed him and, and did really, really well on him. And he went on to be a super fun horse. Um, and then I had another metallic cat mare called Melting Snow that we sold for two eighty. Um, that was just she was out of a full sister to Dual Ray, and she was a beautiful mare. She was uh, end up reserve at the Derby, and uh, made a really nice horse. Uh, there's another cat stud called One Alley Cat that um, that I sold to a real good friend of mine, Cullen Chartier, and then. Um, he had a huge score first go of the Futurity and then got completely smoked on his second cut uh, in the second go. And then that horse was then sold again um, and stayed with Cullen, which was really cool. And then he went on to win Abilene, the first four-year-old show of the year. And that horse has gone on, made a really nice horse. Um, there's a couple of Rankow horses that I sold. I sold a a one-time Pepto horse to Corey Cushing's that he won the Snafflebit Futurity on. Um, I sold another. What was, what was the name of that horse, mate? Uh, that was a horse called Good Time. Yes. Good Time. And then um, I actually uh, put a deal together to sell a horse to Australia. It was kind of a cool story. Um, and part of my commission, Jeffrey Matthews gave me um, a stud colt as out of a really good uh, hickory mare and that horse went on to be uh, hickory holly time that kelby phillips trained and campaigned and he won world's greatest on him and he's he's one of the you know most well-renowned rank cow horses and, and best stallions in the rank cow horse business um so that was kind of a cool deal too just to be part of that horse early and He's, you know, Kelby's a good friend of mine and that horse has been just a, a huge part in in uh, Kelby's career. So that was that was awesome. And then I sold a horse. I made the Futurity Finals on a couple of years ago, 2018. I sold a horse, MVP, um, that was a pretty special horse. But that was that was fun too. Yes, so MVP is Paxton's favourite horse. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you should have stepped in there. But it took him home and drafted him. <laughs> yeah, no, MVP, mate, was one of my favourites. And, um, yeah, but that, that horse, selling that horse certainly had a big impact on, on you guys and your lives. The, the MVP horse? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. I mean, uh, it, you know, it's not – I'm not, not, not saying this to – to boast or anything like that and it's, it's not a secret because people people know in the industry but um yeah that was some kind of roller coaster right there like uh I've, i was partners on that horse with a guy that i buy some horses with and uh we gave twenty four thousand for him and the day i seen him it was like highbrow jackson it was just like i told summer like i have seen the one and i am buying him and uh i called uh I called the people that owned him when I left the fitting the the fitting farm where they were fitting all the yearlings, and it was funny. Like he was a he was a metallic cat stud, and I knew his mother. His mother was one of the top all five mares that I'd ever seen, and um, I just loved. Her. I loved that whole family. I knew like I just the whole family, and uh, he was just a big, raw, plain looking horse, and I, I really. Um, I really place a big part of my judgment on seeing these horses move because, you know, the sport that we play cutting is all about change of direction. And the way a horse changes direction is just simply the way he does it. I'm not going to make him do it any better. So I really am big on watching them move in a round pen and, and seeing how they naturally change direction. And I remember putting this uh, horse in the round pen and I just thought, oh, yeah, he's just a big sort of plain Jane looking old stallion. And uh, this horse made – he wouldn't have gone eight feet. And I was like, oh, my God. And he turned twice. And I was like, yeah, that's good. And I'm trying to do the best poker face I can. I'm like, yeah, that's good. That's maybe cool rope horse. That's, that's it. And I just moved quickly <laughs> on to the next just, – just, just the rope horse. Yeah, I moved quickly on to the next two or three just so I could act like I did not care. And I got in that truck and I was like, summer – that is the horse we are buying. And I called the people that own him, um, Tim and Melissa, uh, Missy Drummond, who I know through the industry. And I said, hey, Tim, um, just seen the cold. Look, you know, nice horse. Just, you know, wondering if you'd sell him before the sale. And in my head, I'm like, if he says 75000 I'm saying sold. And I feel like I've done really good. And he's like, oh, you know, Hayden, no, I mean, I think we'll let him go to the sale, you know. I mean, he's already heading that way. So I was like, ah, oh. so I was just sweating it. And, um, you know, so anyway, the sale rolls around and I'm I'm there and I'm thinking everybody's going to jump in on this, you know, like, gosh, I've got no chance. And by this point, the guy, the Jeremy Barwick, who's the um, agent with Western Bloodstock, he's seen him move and, and uh, you know, you can hear people saying, oh, you know, he's a big horse and, you might think he's a bit plain, but, oh, he can really move. So I'm like, i got no chance. So I was sitting there and in, in waiting for this horse to sell, and I'm just sweating. And uh, long story, I, I give 24000 for him. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And then fast forward, you know, once I get him started and we get down the road a little bit, I realize what kind of horse he is. And, you know, at this point in my career, I have a bit of an understanding on what a good horse is worth. So... I was a little bit more at ease with that. And, and we had some big offers early, you know, quarter of a million dollars. And I was like, nah, not this one. Like, I, I want to go the full journey with this one. I've sold a lot of good ones and we're not, I'm not selling this one. And, and that was the plan the whole way along. And, and uh, the partner that I have on this horse, he's just the greatest guy ever. Like, he just asks no questions, is always there follows my lead and is just whatever we need to do is what we do. And so I, did, I didn't even tell him that we, I, about the 
you know, quarter of a million dollar offers. I was just like, no, nah, he's not for sale. And uh, then we take him to a pre-work in October leading up to the Futurity and the horse is really good. And um, I get a phone call from Taryn Rice. He, um, I got a phone call from a client said, I need to try and buy that horse. And I said, no, nah, Taryn, he's not for sale. You know, I appreciate it. And um, then I get a phone call from Bogallion and Bo goes, Hayden, um, I got a phone call and, and uh, a client of mine wants me to try and buy that horse. And neither of these guys were even there. And uh, so anyway, we get an offer of 500000 and I'm like, oh. And, and I get to show him at the Futurity and uh, then he would, you know, go somewhere else. So I'm like, oh, I better tell my partner about that one. And uh, <laughs> so I called, I called Rusty. And I'm like, hey, they want to buy this horse bad. And I tell him how much. He's like, oh, that's a little bit of money. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, honestly, I said, you know, by the time we split that, I said 250000 is not going to change my life. And I said, you know, and I know it's not yours. And I said, but if he's what I think he is, he sure could change my life. So I'm game to stay if you are. And he goes, ah, hell with it. We're not, we're not selling the horse. Hell with that. So we move forward and we get to the futurity and, and um, I show the, show the horse and I was I drew last on him in both go-rounds, marked a 16.5 first go-round, marked a 19 second go-round. And then I get a phone call from a, an agent that that's, has sold a lot of high-dollar horses and he said, you know, he butters me up and tells me, hey, I'm sure you've had a lot of people try your horse and da-da-da-da. And he said... Um, you know, would you sell that horse? I said, no. He said, well, what about if we put 500000 in your pocket today? I said, no, I appreciate it, Jim, but I think we're going to sit tight. And he said, well, what about if I put a little bit more in your pocket? I said, hey, I tell you, Jim, that's a really, really nice offer, but for right now, we're going to sit tight. And um, he said, well, what about if we double that? And I said, well, gosh, I said, yeah, that's a oh, lot, yeah. Jim. But- <laughs> I said, that's a lot, but I said, um, you know, for right now, no, thank you. And and we, I get off the phone, I'm like, oh, shit. And um, so at that point, I was just saying, no, nah, we're staying strong and we're not going to do it. And then a couple of days went by and that just started to ponder, you know, and I, um, yeah, there's a few, uh, there was a few things that built to this. I won't go too awful into it, but it was just, just knowing just starting to look at how big that was and, and and how things can go either which way and just a lot of unknowns and um I just I talked to my partner and I'm like, hey, I think we need to do this, you know, I mean this is just a big deal and uh, I just think we need to do it. And he's like, Yeah, no, I think we do. So I went ahead and, and, and got the deal together. So so that now we've now we've got the deal together and, and um these guys call us and say they start to get a little bit worried in case something goes, you know, good and we happen to win the futurity or something that we don't change the price. So I'll never forget it was the the morning of the semifinals and I'm down there in the Coliseum and uh, they wrote up a contract. And, um, I mean, I'll probably never experience that again, but, we, we, you know, here we are having a little meeting before the semis and I signed this contract to sell this horse for a million dollars and I'm like, man, if I can get this horse shown tonight, I'm I can get anything shown, you know? And uh <laughs> that was a so, crazy you weren't, so you so you weren't nervous at all? No, not much. Not much I know. I just <laughs> knew it was important. 
<laughs> but anyway, it all worked out, and uh, we got we were we were second last in the very very last bunch of the semis, and and um, we survived it and made the final, and and um, the final I didn't didn't get along the final like I'd hoped, of course. But but anyway, the um, yeah, it all uh, it all went through, and the horse has gone on, and and he's you know it's just really interesting and, and important for me. Bo Gallion's got him, and um, he's just turned into everything that I thought he was, and it's just really cool to see, um, you know, what kind of a horse. And Bo and I are really tight, and it's just great talking to Bo, to you know, Bo's Road Rebel and, and Metallic Cat and Stevie and such great horses. Um, to to hear Bo speak of him is, and, and the way he regards him is like crazy. So it's really cool to to uh, it's really you know you're always wondering are they that kind and and um, it's pretty neat you know. No, that's good. That's good that you you're still kind of close by, enjoying the ride with him. Yeah, no, it's really cool. It's cool to you want you know you want those stories to work out good for everybody. You want um, you know, you just want it to work out. So, thankfully, so far it is. So, really, you established yourself as a two-year-old trainer pretty early on, but then sort of almost it sounds like MVP really helped you break through that barrier a little bit into proving that you can really train and show one sort of do you think that has really helped you along and is that where you're at now or what's what's the go now yeah well it's um you know you learn so much as you go and um it's just such a journey and and it really to be honest it just comes back to relationships and you know what the i've I've got some really really good clients um and it's taken a long time to build that you know i mean starting with forest way back when like i really have been looking for that same support system that i had back then um i've rode horses for a lot of fabulous people along the way the only thing with selling high dollar two-year-olds it kind of it kind of trapped me in a little bit of a corner where everybody wanted to send me two-year-olds to sell for a lot of money as opposed to leave really good show horses in training so it you know it was really good and it, and it helped a lot but it kind of also sort of pinholed me a little bit to where um you know people were like oh that's what hayden does he just he just sells him high dollar two-year-olds so let's just send him those horses so it was just that's that was a slow progression digging out of there and and just that a big part of that was certain horses along the way but more than that was probably just you know relationships along the way and people that would you know believe in me and stick with me and you know and it takes it takes the right person and it takes the right situation when when you've got a horse for a client and someone comes and offers them 200,000 it takes the right situation maybe they need to sell that horse you know so I get that I understand that so you know there's just so many little factors right there to where it just takes the right people the right relationships and uh thankfully right now i've got you know several of those in the works and and some um some really nice horses and that's enabling me to to keep a quality string of horses to be able to go show yeah and so because you became so known for your two-year-old program what do you think it was that made you different from the others how come you know apart from getting the quality product what else went into making that two-year-old a phenomenal product? Well, 
like honestly like uh 90% 90% of it is just a better product is is the truth like i just i just put more like to me like i had already i had already bought the high selling 2 year old the day i bought the yearling that's how i looked at it so so i didn't think of like going and buying some yearlings and then i was going to do this fabulous job and it'd be this really good horse which i think you know is maybe a lot of people's approach my approach was i'm going to really try and educate myself um to 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 seeing what what they are and who they are and you know that's sort of how i approach buying horses at yearling sales like i I want the one I want, you know. I, I'm not trying to buy the one because he's in my price range or whatever. Um, obviously, that within reason, I don't go silly, but but I'd rather give thirty thousand more for a horse because I think he's the one, you know. And um, and truthfully, I think that is what has allowed me to be involved with such great horses and and sell some really nice horses was just that they were just better horses when I bought them. Um, and then you know, I mean, I, I just I try. I done I done a good job. Obviously, you have to, but um, yeah. Without, I mean, really, really, that is that is the nuts and bolts of it. They they were just quality horses, and I really tried that. <clears throat> selling those two year olds, there is really a a lot to that, and and there's a way to do it. And all I tried to do was do a really good job. But if someone's going to give a lot of money for a horse, You've got the best guys in the business looking at these horses. You've got to let – they're not going to give you 200000 for a two-year-old just because you've done a nice job on it. They're looking at the individual. They need to see the God-given things that this horse does. So when I was trying to, you know, get these horses started and get them working a cow and in, and in particular videoing the horses, I always wanted to – have let the people see that that I had done a good job getting a good foundation and get this horse started, but I never wanted to be so involved or in that horse's world so much that that they still couldn't see the god given stuff by that I mean the way a horse you know prepares himself behind because a cow makes him or the way a horse you know pricks his ears and the way a horse thinks through the middle of that turn i it was very important that when you're presenting the horse and that when you're videoing the horse that you capture those things because those are the things that are going to make someone go, we're buying that one. That's a good horse. Yeah, yeah, good, mate. So so you, the Will Rogers, you've, you've done pretty well with uh, MVP in there by making the Futurity final and then uh, a, a horse called Superfly, you did pretty well on him as – as a yep. showman, yeah, Superflies was a really cool horse for me. Um, you know, he was a bay gelding, and Smith is a cat gelding, and that, that was, you know, like sort of touching on what I spoke about earlier. Like, um, uh, you know, I nearly lost that horse when he was three to two other trainers because he was such a nice horse, and and this is a a, a really good client that's been with me from the beginning. And you know he 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 probably could have took the money and probably could have done with the money, but he was like, you know what, Hayden Hayden's had this horse, he loves this horse. This horse is a big deal to him, and um, yeah, so that horse was really big. Um, I won a 
a John Deere final, a limited open final at Fort Worth on him and made several other finals. And he was the, he was the first probably real legit open horse that I got to show and, and really try and compete on. And he's since then gone on to a really good home and, um, you know, he's won over 100,000 now and they've hauled him for the world. He's just made a really nice horse. So he was sure a big deal. And, um, you know, I've had, I've got a really nice gelding right now that, uh, my biggest client owned and, um, we made the, uh, Derby finals in Fort Worth a couple of years ago and this, um, super stakes final also. So, he he's also made a, a really nice horse. So there's you know there's been some nice horses there that I've been fortunate enough to show. And you know, like I say, it's just all all based on on um, you know having good people that believe in you and and give you the opportunity. Yeah. So Hayden, I I just really want to touch on um, last year. It was about this time last year came over to Australia and, and held a clinic and. Um, you know, it was I sort of got, was lucky enough to attend, and you really alluded to the fact, and something that stood that stood out to me was working through the horse's mind, and um, you know, really creating it, creating the game of cutting to be his idea, and then you're simply just putting the style on, brushing it on him. Um, just talk to us a little bit about how you developed that and how that sort of works. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> yeah, so that all just come about by like, you know, being honest with myself and 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 observing and and it was all just right there in front of me to see like um so being in California and being around a lot of the rank cow horse trainers, you know, I got to see some you know, phenomenal horse training and some some really good horses that were very well broke and soft and I mean you could change leads and do all kinds of things and then when I had you know my snaffle bitter he was he did the rain work really well and I had him really broke and and I was like yeah this is what you do you know you have this stuff and then you uh then you just go work that cow and after my experience personally and seeing seeing how that went and then asking myself why like why was this so terrible? And then when I'd come back to Fort Worth in the early days, those first few experiences, I remember sitting in the stands and, you know, I remember just being ignorant. I remember looking at people dry work their horses, cutting horses before they went down and these horses looking really unbroke, you know, couldn't hardly stop the horse, couldn't hardly back the horse. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, you know, look at this. Got, this guy's got no idea. And and then in my head, I'm like, my horse would be just awesome. He'd be just stopping and backing. And, and then I'd watch old mate walk down there to the herd and just go faster than I've ever seen a horse go with a cow and stop so fast and so in time with a cow. I was like, how in the hell does that happen? So, I mean, that was really the aha moment was like, how? Like, I don't get it. You know, why are these cutting horses so much better than these really broke rain cow horses, for example, on a cow? And it just really made me realize that, you know, it's it's all about getting the horse to be involved. It, it can never, that stop can never, ever be as in time or it can never, ever be as good as if it's 100% 
of that horse's idea. Like that's the best. Whatever that horse is, if that horse is a, a 71 horse or if it's a 75 horse, whatever it is, 100% of his involvement, that's it. That's the best. So, you know, really that's all I try and do on any of these horses is, who, who you know, no matter who they are or what level they can play at, all I'm trying to do is just get 100% of their involvement to their job. And and that is all of them. That's that's all they can be, you know. So that would be similar to maybe somebody that's listening to this podcast that ain't ain't a horse trainer as such, but they might be a a, a dog trainer and um, right. have 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 dogs as a um, as a way of life and working the the cows and the sheep. And that yep. would be sim- similar mindset to what you just talked about there to to training your dog to go and be a cow dog or a sheep dog. Yeah, well I mean there there's the I mean there's the same examples there. Um you know that that anyone that's ever messed with dogs has has experienced it's like you can have all the all the left right and and away and come by and all the commands in the world and you can play on the in the little pen with the sheep and all this stuff. But at the end of the day when you kick old Benji out round him if it if it doesn't come from within him to to really want to you know um, cover that stock and 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 move those stock, if that doesn't come from within him, all the buttons and the downs and the this and the that is is for nothing. You know, it's and we've all we've all seen that we've all seen that in the horse industry. We've all seen that in the you know say for example with the working dogs. We've all seen you know we've all had a dog that we. We had some hand line and it was, you know, we liked the dog and then we've we've been somewhere where old mates had a dog that he really didn't have much of nothing on but he could just send him forever and the cattle would be panned, done. I mean, the dog yes. was just done. You're thinking, well, how the hell did he do that? Because I, I know i got some stuff on my dog. I've been to a couple of little dog trials and but I sure as hell can't do that, you know. So... I think it's very similar, and that's what's interesting about the crossover of those two worlds. When you see a common denominator like that, it makes you realise how important it is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, mate, uh, you know, talked about like <clears throat> so much success, and it's been a great story. And and I was talking to a fella this time last year, and they were talking about yourself and you know mentioning the the things that you've achieved and and then it was I think it was Rob Leach he says yeah but you don't have a summer <laughs> everyone has to have a summer <laughs> so yeah, for sure <laughs> she yeah. um yes yeah, just tell let us know yeah. about oh, summer she- and, and and what she does and and behind the scenes and yeah, yeah, exactly. And no one will ever know, you know, like it's um yeah, I mean I've been I've I've gone off on some pretty far fetched little wild <laughs> wild ideas, you know, and, and 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 she's made it all possible because, you know, with it, without summer being the backbone of it all, I mean she she runs the chiropractor she she's helped me side by side for, you know, nearly 18 years and 
and uh, and she does all the bookwork side of things and and um you know knowing that that things are taken care of has allowed me to to you know be running off here in the afternoon to go ride with someone or you know some crazy little dog venture that I was on and so like it's just i mean absolutely no i would have needed a small army to to do what she's done over the last 18 years to allow me to to get off on all the little ventures i've been on you know yeah and just her being involved in it having that extra eye to be able to pick up on something that might not be quite right just that attention to detail and the trained eye that she's got is able to to help you guys pick things up early oh and it's it's like crazy like you know she comes from a motorbike family but you know her dad's very um you know he's a very detailed kind of guy and and she's just that way but like the it's a it blows my mind you know what she's learned and and how good whether it's the chiropractic or whether it's the the looking at yearlings or watching horses like it's just amazing like she can you can, I mean, we go if we go chiropractic horse and we try to horse around, and I'm a little bit unsure. I can be like, "Hey, what do you see?" And like, if she says it's this, and I'm unsure, I'm going to go that way because she's like she don't miss much at all. I mean, way probably more in tune than I am in ways like, especially with this training business now. Like, it's crazy. She'll be like, "Yeah, the 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 blanket on that horse, which is the rug." Um, it's, it's leaning a li- every time I catch that horse in the morning, the, the blanket's off to the left side. It's, it's not centered anymore. And, and, uh, there's something going on with that left hind, I think. And, you know, uh, that horse, when I lead that horse in the barn, um, he's walking way slower or when I lead him to the arena, he, he just won't lead anymore. There's something going on, you know, and just crazy little things. So yeah, mm. she's, um, she's pretty into it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's priceless. You can't, you know. Oh gosh, money can't buy that. No, not at all. It's a, it's it takes a team, and and she's a big part of this one for sure. Now, Hayden, what's sort of the future look for you guys? What are you sort of aiming at or progressing towards to for the coming years? Yeah, do we have a pass? Do we have a pass in this segment or not? Negatory. <laughs> 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 Summer's been asking that for 20 years, so I was a bit worried we'd get to this question. But, mate, I, I don't honestly know, and I don't know why I don't know. But um, I feel a little bit maybe like this whole thing's just been, like ever since we've been here, it's just been so, like, everything's so unknown and so new. Like, I had no idea I'd be in America. I had no idea I'd be training cutting horses. You know, I so it's just like, there's, there's th- it's hard to, I don't know, like, there's so many possibilities that I would never even have thought of. I could have never had that goal maybe because I, I didn't even know that was possible. You know, I mean, I never knew you could sell horses for what, what you people buy. You know, I mean, I, I didn't even know that. So I don't know. I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I think, you know, I just want to um, just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, honestly, we're, I feel like I'm living living the dream. I mean, I'm I'm living in in a great place um i get reminded every day and have to remind myself every day just the the luxuries that we have here that i'm very fortunate to have 
and you know I get to ride the best horse flesh there is. Um, you know, I get. I mean, it's just so. Yeah, I mean, I think we're just going to keep doing more of what we're what we're doing. Um, keep keep learning. Keep an open mind to what opportunities might arise, and um, just keep on rocking along. Just keep working hard. You know, just keep trying to get better. Yeah, fair enough. Well, thanks, Hayden, for joining us on the podcast, mate. I've really been looking forward to doing this with you and, um, yeah, just stoked that you could get on here and uh, give us the time and and tell us your story. I think um, everyone will really enjoy that, so thank you very much. And um, a big thank you to Rob here uh, for joining us here as well and doing the interview with us. Hopefully it wasn't too scary for you, mate, but, um, no, thanks, guys. It was great. Uh, Awesome, mate. Well, I appreciate it. It was good to have a yarn, and I appreciate you thinking of me and um yeah i mean i hope everybody enjoys it yeah for sure no it's good good job mate where um everyone's proud of you and you've you've done a good job you and summer and i know that um your family and everybody that knows you over here that's either met you or have known you beforehand that they all have enjoyed your story and and what you guys have achieved so well done, mate, to you and Summer. No, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Hopefully we can get no. all this virus stuff behind us and we can all get back to travelling a bit here soon. Well, guys, that was a heck of a story. Thanks, Hayden, for doing that, mate. I got a heap out of that and really enjoyed catching up with you. And a big shout-out to you, Rob. Thanks for doing that, mate. You did well, and it was um, great having you here on the podcast. So... Thanks, guys. Well, guys, I felt like there was a fair bit of valuable information throughout that podcast, but something that probably stood out to me the most was when Hayden and Summer took out that loan for $20,000 to go and purchase a horse. This, no doubt, was a big move from Hayden, but incredibly smart because it is difficult to get that right horse, but by going and purchasing it, it really set him up for success, and it certainly paid off. Well guys, we sure hope you enjoyed that interview with Hayden Upton and be sure to comment on our Facebook post and tell us what you got out of that conversation with Hayden. We'd love to hear from you. Righto guys, till next week, we'll catch you then. But at the end of the day, I earn my pay and a ramble man it seems. One shot, two shot, baby, let's ride this rodeo. Three shot, four, five, honey, I'm the rebel. One step, two step, baby, put your foot flat to the floor. Three step, four, run, baby, I'm an outlaw. I don't have time for politics, I'm not a first class citizen. Every backtrack out of here, I'll outrun you if I can. Feel the rush, the push and chub, I'm like a flame almost a fire. And if you're trying to work my buttons, you've got a madman's dark desire. One shot, two shot, baby, let's ride this rodeo. Three shot, four, five, honey, I'm a rebel. One step, two step, baby, put your foot flat to the floor.